maybe saying, I'm in a world of hurt right now. How do I hold on to it? By the grace of God. You continue to lean into God and trust the character of God. And he will reveal to you truth and he will deliver you from the lies. And in the community of faith, based on the work of the Holy Spirit, you can be safe in your doubts, walking in your faith, if that makes sense. You are listening to the Classes Podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. This semester, we are teaching through the Book of Romans to accompany our Sunday morning series. We hope this class helps you find completeness in Jesus. Grateful to be here, though, uh, with you guys. And uh, just to let you know, we put an updated schedule for this class in terms of what the weeks will be on there. So you probably picked it up as you came in, hopefully. If you did, if not, it'll be out there. So when you leave, you can grab it and replace it with the one that you had. The problem was that I accidentally had this class going um, until the Wednesday right before Thanksgiving. And we're not going to meet that week. So um, we'll be done the week before that. So basically, I just smushed some of the Book of Romans together a little bit. So hopefully that will um, not throw us off too much. I don't think it should. But uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at Romans 5, uh, verses 1 through 21. But before we do that, uh, we wanted to address some of the questions we got. Again, just excellent questions. Um, Honestly, it's, it is really fun to see how you guys are thinking and processing through, through this. Um, it's really good. So please keep them coming. Um, so what we're going to do is just start to ask some of these, and then um, we'll uh, do a little bit of recap where we are. Chapter 5 is really a hinge in this book in many ways, and so we'll, we'll kind of recap where we've been, and then that'll help set us up for where we're going. Sound good? But before we do that, I do want to pray. So let's pray together. Father God, you are holy and you are good and you are just, and you are loving, God. And we see all of those things climax in your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that your spirit would continue to reveal more and more of of that beautiful story and how it includes us tonight as we, as we look more at your word. God, that it would just speak um, in ways that we weren't expecting. God, we just pray that you would help tonight be another night where your church gathers and it enjoys uh, the truth of what you've revealed and offer to us freely. God, we pray that uh, you would continue to just be with everything going on uh, throughout this campus tonight, God, that more and more of your people would be changed and renewed um, to, to bring you glory and to bring us joy, as always, Father. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with some questions, and the first one I'm going to throw to, to Mark, this one, um, it says, Romans 3.31 says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. So the question is, in response to that verse, what is the law? Ten Commandments, the sacrifices, uh, can you bring a little bit of clarity to that? Well, obviously, the term law is defined by the context in which it's written. Sometimes it would be very specifically the Ten Commandments, the rules and regulations of holy living that you might find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But I think if you always, well, always, if you start from the perspective that law means the ways of God, if you start at that perspective, then you can bore down into the specific commands or the simple ways of God. Um, we were talking about it in, uh, in the green room just a few moments ago, preparing for this. I would lead you to read the 119th Psalm. It's a brief read, 176 verses. Uh, it's the longest it Psalm too. in the, in the Psaltery. But in the 176 verses of that Psalm, it's talking about the law of God. 
that it's a light unto our feet and it shines a brightness on the path of life. It leads us in the ways of the Lord. It draws us close to the presence of God. So when Paul's talking about the law, he's not always talking about the rules, not always. Sometimes he's just talking about the general understanding, can you trust God, which if you want a good definition of faith is whether or not you place your trust in the goodness and character of God to lead you. So I hope to whoever asked that question, you'll understand I'm not being evasive. But the law can mean a lot of things. If you always start with the ways of God and how he has dictated that to us, it'll set you up to understand in particular how it's being used in a text. And then Michael, I'll throw this one um, over to you. There's actually, so I'm going to throw the next three over to him because they all have to do with circumcision. We had a lot of questions about circumcision. You guys are very, very interested in this. And so I just knew that Michael would do well with this. So what was God's purpose for instituting circumcision? How did people know who was circumcised? Why was this a hidden sign? I know. It's a great question, though, honestly, you know? This is what we were fighting about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if circumcision is an act of righteousness, then it can literally only be completed by a man. Is there an, an equivalent for women? I think God's purpose was to call Abraham to put his faith into action, to put his trust into action. Um, it is. It would be beneficial um, as you're reading through Romans. To a lot of the, a lot of our Bibles will have little references down at the bottom anytime Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and you may even have a Bible that has other Bible references in a middle column or off to the side. If you're wondering how to spend a decent amount of time just working through the text, then you could follow some of those references, and it will be a beneficial comparing. So the story of Abraham in Genesis, um, in the book of Genesis, really is is something that Paul has in mind, and something that he knows and wants his readers to have in mind. And so again, just to remind you of some of the some of the specifics of that narrative by the chapters that we locate them is in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham uh, and he makes promises to him and he says, I'm going to work through you. And then in Genesis chapter 15, he reaffirms that promise to Abraham and he asks him to look up at the sky, to look out in the sand, and he tells him, this is how many offspring you're, you're going to have. And that's when Abraham believed God, and or Abram at the time was his name, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as justification. And then in chapter 16, you got all the chaos with Hagar and Ishmael and, um, you know, Abraham and Sarah conspiring together to try to take matters into their own hands. Uh, God promised that we were going to have a lot of children and we're really old and we don't have any children. So Sarah, it was her idea initially and Abraham agreed, maybe we should do it this other way. Maybe God is just waiting for us to take, you know, initiative in this regard. And so they do that. And, and that's, you know, Abraham, it, he has a child with uh, Hagar. She gives birth to Ishmael. And that wasn't the way God wanted them to do it. And so God is essentially then in 17, Genesis chapter 17, after that story, institute circumcision. This was supposed to be short, sorry. The point of it is essentially to, invite, to, to, to call Abraham to trust him with this promise of producing a child. And the reason why circumcision, circumcision was a practice in a number of cultures around that time, but for Abraham and for God's people, it was a sign that he were, we were releasing control of the reproduction process. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut off that which protects the thing I use to make children. That's as explicit as I'm going to get. <laughs> and so it was a very concrete act of obedience, of obedient trust that was related to the specific promise that God had given. And Jews would continue to be circumcised as a way of communicating that they want to have that same faith in God's promises. Um, what some of the other questions were, you know, was it, um, 
was it something that was also for women? No, female circumcision is also a thing, but it's pretty terrible. It's a lot worse of a, of a practice than male, male circumcision, just in terms of the, the cleanliness of it um, from a danger standpoint. And so the women weren't themselves circumcised, but they were a part of this act of circumcision. The mom is the one giving her eight-year-old baby boy to be circumcised. And the mother, of course, the wife, the, the wife has, a, has a part in the act of making children. And so it's really them together whose faith is symbolized in this act of circumcision, which seems strange to us because we tend to think very individualistically, but their, their community would, their um, culture would have been a lot more communal. With respect to how people would have known, I mean, you could always just show somebody, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, I mean, they, they really, <laughs> they didn't have the same degrees of privacy in the ancient world that we do, although Jews were comparatively fairly private people. I guess the circumcision doctor was just a really important person in town. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to grow up to be a judge. I want to grow up to be a, what's the word? I can't think of the word. The urologist. Yeah, I want to be the uh, spiritual. Anyway, we don't want to keep going down that line. But I, I mean, theoretically, you could ask, the, ask that person, hey, they get circumcised? Yep. How do you know? I did it. Okay, we're good to go. These guys were joking about having their foreskin in like a locket on their neck and all sorts of weird things. So that was all them, though, not me. But um, it, it would have been a matter of concern. And if push came to shove, it's not that hard to find out. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the promises God made, obviously, was like, you're going to reproduce. You are going to make the star, like, look at the stars, look at the sand. Like, this is what I'm going to make your family. And so, even to see the, the intimacy of a husband and a wife um, come together, they were actually fulfilling the promise of God in that way. And so, they were, although they didn't carry the sign with them, they were very involved with, with what that sign meant and what it was going to produce um, as a whole. So, uh, in terms of Abraham's actions, uh, that we had a question that, that had to do with Abraham and his faith, um, especially, you know, obviously preaching on uh, this last Sunday on Abraham and his faith and what that meant. This question was, how does Abraham's actions with Sarah's handmaidens reflect on his faith? And um, I think that's a great question. Honestly, I got this question actually quite a bit because Paul does seem to use Abraham as this, as this illustration of somebody who has great faith, and yet we know he failed, right? Uh, we know that, uh, morally speaking, like he did things that were outside of the will of God. And, and Michael even t just talked about this briefly in, in his explanation that he went, they, they tried to basically take a shortcut in God's plan. And Sarah was like, hey, why don't you sleep with, with some of my, my servants so we can maybe get this plan going that God had promised about. And so uh, how do we look at Abraham knowing that his faith was compromised at, at some level, that he actually compromised what God um, wanted to do in the way that God wanted to do it? And the truth is, if you look at anybody mentioned in Scripture as somebody that even Hebrews 11 lists as a hero of the faith, they are all deeply, deeply flawed. Every single one of them. Like, like, Moses himself did not get to go into the promised land because he was flawed. Uh, Abraham obviously did some things that shows he was flawed. King David did some things that showed he was a flawed man. And so even though God used all these people in incredible ways, they were deeply flawed. And at one level, that should give you great hope <laughs> because God is in the business of using broken people. And he's not done yet. Every single person in this room is a, is a testimony of the fact that like, God does incredible things, and he's not done yet. And so at one level, that should be a great comfort. The other thing, though, is recognizing that this is why Jesus was so necessary. There was a hero that we lacked, regardless of what amazing person came along, regardless of what 
you know, Abraham was willing to do with Isaac, regardless of what King David was able to do through his trust and his, his um, you know, military accomplishments, we still needed someone else who was perfect. And that's what Jesus provides for us. So yes, Abraham was a flawed man. But we do see uh, when Abraham is willing to offer up his son Isaac, that there is a level of faith there that is stunning. And that is what Hebrews 11 speaks about when it says that Abraham's trust and faith in God was of such a character by this point in his life. Because guys, our faith grows over time, you know? Like God does not expect us to remain the same. Um, And over time, Abraham got to a place where he was able to desire to please God that he was going to offer up his own son. And in Hebrews, it says that he was willing to do that because he believed that God would simply raise him from the dead. That's how much trust he had in God, that he recognized that even if he had to take his own son's life, God could give it back because God was going to be faithful to that promise. So a long answer, but that is the answer I would, I would give to that. Um, is there a correlation between the Israelites looking upon the servant held up on the staff to be healed and looking at and believing on the actions of Jesus on the cross? This is another question we got. Now, I'm not sure exactly where this one came from in terms of the text of Romans, but to be specific, absolutely there is. Uh, J- uh, Jesus actually speaks about this in John 3. He talks about in a similar way, just as the people had broken the commands of God and were incurring the wrath of God, that there was a, a essentially a, uh, a staff with a serpent's head on it that came that they had to look upon to be cleansed. And that really is a similar thing that what Jesus is drawing this comparison to, that there was a wrath of God coming upon the people of God, uh, upon, upon all people, because of our of our sinfulness. Uh, but by looking upon the cross, by, by looking upon Jesus, we actually find that source of salvation and healing. So yes, absolutely, there's a tie there. And then the next question is regarding Romans 3, 3-4, through 4, why does Paul quote Psalm 51, 4? I may be missing context. So if you look in your Bibles at Romans 3, 3-4, through 4, uh, it, it has this um, it text there where it's quoting Psalm 51, 4, and it's translated a little bit differently. In NIV, it says, prevail when you judge, And in the ESV, it says, prevail when you are judged. So why? What's the difference of this, and and what does it mean? Uh, Michael, do you want to tackle that one? Sure. Yeah, and whenever I initially was thinking about this, I was um, actually had my mind uh, in the the wrong place because he quotes from Psalm 32 in chapter 4, but I'm saying that you're talking, yeah, about back in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul's asking in context, what what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And indeed, that is a quotation that comes from Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David prayed after his uh, terrible sin with Bathsheba. He essentially had taken advantage of his power and impregnated this woman and then had her husband killed. Um, that story is told in, in the books of Samuel. And so here you have King David repenting before God. In the context of that um, experience, he says to God, uh, you're, you're, you're correct in judging me because David faced punishment for that sin. So you're correct in what you've done. I may be suffering as a result of this, but you definitely are righteous. And I think in that section of Romans chapter 3, what Paul is saying is, Just because the Jews have not lived up to the ideal of being this perfect means of God's blessing into the world does not mean that God is not going to keep his promise to them. No, God's righteousness is not threatened by human unfaithfulness. God's ability to keep his promises is not threatened by our inability to hold up our part of the bargain. But Paul is also saying right there in that section, the law 
the covenant with Israel itself, these imperfect people are not going to be the way in which God keeps that promise. Now, I know that's confusing because it's supposed to be. Because Paul, remember, is setting you up by having you ask a question. How is God going to fulfill this covenant if the very people who were designed to extend the blessing actually became part of the curse? And the answer is, he's going to send the faithful Messiah who offers himself as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So it's all related to the way in which Paul's argument is developing. But right then and there, the translation question that somebody pointed out was some translations say, prevail when you judge. And others say, prevail when you are judged. The reason why uh, there's a difference there is um, one of two things. Sometimes you've got very slight differences in the words in the original language. So it might literally just be like a, a, a marking uh, shifts the meaning from judge to are judged. And you may have had various scribes through the, through the centuries add the marking or take the marking off. Or it may be that the word is actually spelled in exactly the same way, much like some of our words, read and read. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's, it's not necessarily the same word, but it's the same spelling. Um, so then the context actually determines which one it is. So in this case, it could be that David is praying, you're prevailed when you judge me, you're shown to be in the right, or you are shown to be in the right when people ask if you judge rightly. Does that make sense? So either God is the one who's judging and he's doing it well, or somebody is judging God and they're concluding that he's doing it well. So either way, the point is that God is right and proper and just and faithful and true. And then the last question, which I think is um, just a great question. I'm glad that it was asked because I think that uh, one that Mark will do well answering, <laughs> but it says this, how does grace through faith apply when you're going through a major season of doubt? So again, listen to the question, how does grace through faith apply when you're going through a major season of doubt? The very simple answer is absolutely. It is only by grace. So if the question in our minds is, how much do I have to maintain to stay connected to the grace of God? We have not understood grace. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The grace of God was offered to us in our worst condition, in a condition of rebellion, a fist raised against God's help. So seasons of doubt when it comes to faith are actually the process by which uh, Elijah alluded to it, uh, at least the way I heard him say it was, I think faith is a muscle that must be exercised. And doubt is one of those things that exercises your faith. When you ask the hard questions, you grow. It, it, it forces each one of us to rely on the character of God and seek the character of God and go into the word and let the Holy Spirit speak. So if, it, if you're just running through life singing la, 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 chances are your faith is going to be very elementary. But when you take steps to confront your doubt, why, why can't we doubt our doubts if we're going to doubt our faith? Why can't we be challenged in community to grow and to think and to be challenged? It's just the healthiest part of it. It's the most unpleasant part of your walk of faith, but it's the healthiest part of it. So I don't know if you went to college and you don't have to go to college to understand this. I think you could anticipate it either way, but it was the professors who made it more difficult on you that stretched you beyond anything you ever were before. The first paper I ever turned in in college got sent back. And on the top of that paper, my first effort, I was a a B plus, A minus student in high school. I turned in my first paper and on the top it was written, see Chris Ralston on how to write a paper. I didn't even get a grade. I didn't get a nice try. I got a, what was that? 
and I went to this senior, and I said, are you Chris? And he said, yeah. And I said, I got this paper. And he smiled, and he goes, you're the third one today. This professor taught us at the very beginning, if you think bringing what you normally bring is going to get you through college, this ain't high school, Skippy. It was a good, valuable lesson. Doubts. Doubts are not fun, but doubts are not as threatening as we want to make them. So I'm going a little around the question, and let me come back to it. How does grace through faith apply? It absolutely applies. The same grace that saved you while you were the enemy is the same grace that will walk you through the doubts. God is patient. God is faithful. God is not going to abandon you because you question him. Or Job would have been burnt off the map like that. In fact, if you go through scripture, read the Psalms and don't find, and, and, and see if you can't find for yourself moments where people are expressing reasons to doubt. And yet almost all of them, I mean, you guys can correct me on this, I would assume almost all of them at the end have a retraction of that doubt and it all goes back to the character and goodness of God. So I don't want to answer so esoterically that the person who's asking the question, you may be saying, I'm in a world of hurt right now. How do I hold on to it? By the grace of God. You continue to lean into God and trust the character of God. And he will reveal to you truth and he will deliver you from the lies. And in the community of faith, based on the work of the Holy Spirit, you can be safe in your doubts, walking in your faith, if that makes sense. I don't know if you guys want to... Well, I'd, only that I've never, I've never, this has never occurred to me before, but I, I'm hearing your language of hold on to right after you said grace through faith. And I'm having this image of connecting that term, connecting that metaphor to those things. And it's like faith is holding on to the God who's holding on to you. So if, you know, if... That's what I meant to say. No, you, well, I, I've never thought about this before. But yeah, if like, a, like, let's say my son's falling down a wall, I don't know, a cliff or something. And if I've got his arm, he's gripping my arm. The question is not how hard is he gripping my arm? The question is, am I strong enough to hold him up? And the answer of God, the answer, it's yes. Yeah. Does your doubt come in waves or is it random when you think back through your journey? Like, is there, is it like every few years or every decade or is it more like, no, it just sometimes hits, it's here for a while? I, yeah, I think it's more of, um, it's random. It hits me in moments. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's not like, there have been moments it's taken me off my feet. Sure. Yeah. And I was a preacher. Right. So it wasn't when I was just a kid. You're supposed to believe it 100% all the time. Never, yeah, never you doubt. You walk on stage yeah. and go, wow, do I, I never doubted about the presence of God or the work of Jesus, but there were certain things that the church teaches yeah. that I'm like, I don't know that I really Weird. think that's yeah. real. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think my parents taught me a long time ago, you can doubt your doubts as much as you doubt that's your faith. True. Yeah. That's, that's a true. healthy thing to do, I think. Yeah. And I think that even the text that we look at tonight will be a helpful, um, you know, a helpful medicine uh, to some of those things that we that we face um, I know for myself in particular I if I do have a doubt it comes in the moments that are obviously hardest you know and uh, and I think that uh, that's where God loves to God loves to speak if we would have ears to hear so uh, I think that's part of what our text addresses so let's get there let's recap just as a reminder where we've been chapter one right Paul says hello everyone my name's Paul, and I uh, haven't met you yet, but I've heard some good things about you. And here's what I need you to know is that uh, I'm a Jew too, and I have enjoyed the promises of God, the amazing stories of King David, the law and the prophets and of all that they have said, both the good and the bad. I, I'm with you guys. But here's what I need you to know. It's not just for us. It's for the whole world, because God has done something in Christ that is going to change everything. 
And by the way, it did. Uh, we're sitting in this room tonight, thousands of miles away from where Paul wrote that letter because it changed literally everything. And so once he gets into that and he explains that, he's trying to help people recognize that that feeling of guilt, that feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of insecurity, of the things that we feel where we, we recognize like, yeah, I know that there's something out there that I'm not quite right with, I've, that I've crossed at some level. Paul says, I have the solution. I have the solution to that that enslaving sin that you feel. I have that solution to the guilt that you feel. I have the solution to the death that we fear. I have the solution to the insecurity that we experience when we walk into the world. And it's all found in Jesus Christ because he's given us a righteousness that transcends every other justification that we've ever sought. But here's what I need you to know. If you're going to get this righteousness, it has to be because you are aware that you yourself are not right. And that's when he goes into this, trying to help the whole world understand where they stand outside of the presence of God and why they stand outside of the presence of God. Because sin has disrupted everything. Sin and death are having their way in this world. And God has been slow to enact his wrath because he has this grand plan of redemption that he's enacting. And so that's where we really, chapter one goes. The whole world is condemned before God. We have idols in our lives, things that we consider of utmost value that take up our time and they take up our resources and they take up our life. And we have made these things the most important thing. And God has become a byproduct or something extra extra on the side. The created has usurped the creator. And so in light of those things, uh, wrath is coming. And that's not just true for the Gentiles, or all humanity. That's true for the Jews as well, right? That's where chapter two um, really picks up. It says, but hey, you guys aren't safe here either. God gave you some things. He was very involved in your story, but that doesn't mean that you guys are have, have favoritism, that God's playing favorites because of those things. In fact, if anything, because God has given you those things and you actually still sin, if anything, it actually magnifies, it, it reveals the weaknesses that you have within you. And so chapter three is like, okay, so what's going to happen? And Paul's like, it doesn't look good. Like everybody's kind of standing on the outside and, and God's wrath is going to be coming for all of us. And the question that Paul is trying to really address is, do you feel the weight of that yet? Because until you can feel the weight of your sin, you will never feel the weight of it when it's lifted off of you. And that's what Christ is trying to do. And so Paul uses one more illustration to show how righteousness has actually now been revealed to, uh, through Jesus at the end of chapter 3, in verses 21 through the end. And then he goes into chapter 4 and he gives us an illustration how this righteousness can be not through being good, not through being perfect, not through having it all together, but through through surrendering and having faith and trusting in the only person who does. Not Abraham, right? Not Moses, not David, King Jesus. And chapter four is this unpacking where justification can be found through faith in this God apart from the law. And this is good news. And this is where we really pick up in chapter five. Did you want to add anything else to that? I'll go back to uh, how I was taught Romans and it stuck with me and I've used it on you repeatedly. So if it hasn't stuck yet, I hope one day it will. We have a need for a double cure. The first thing is we're all guilty and we deserve to be punished. There's no denying that. No one stands exempt of that. We need that taken care of. Second thing is we have a slavery to sin. So far in the first four chapters, Paul is addressing the first of our double cure. Jesus is the solution to the punishment of our sin. The propitiation, the atoning blood, leads us to where we are. He gives an example of an imperfect man. I thought you did a really good job in your summation of the question about Abraham and, and Hagar. When you look at it, the, the imperfection of Abraham 
uh, shows that God will save those who trust him. He will do that good work. We don't provide it. He does it. So because of that double cure, we're going to get to the other part. How do we break slavery of sin? Just hold on a week or so. All right? Because Michael's going to address that off this stage in just a couple of weeks. But the big piece is when we get to chapter 5, remember that this hinge moment we're talking about is our greatest needs. And I love what you said, Elijah. I always want to compliment you for it because when you put it in this terms, there's a difference between feeling the guilt and carrying the shame. Okay? Some Christians feel like if you're not beating yourself up every day saying how poor you are as a human being, that you won't understand grace. I, I don't believe in that. The guilt is real, though. And when you feel the, the guilt, then you understand the glory of Jesus. If you feel like he's doing you a favor but really needs to help those other people, then we get stuck. So I hope I'm not messing it up. Now we go into chapter 5, and we're talking about this principle of what does it then look like the work that Jesus did? And can we truly trust it? So then I think it's off to you, Mr. DeFazio. So you may set up the rest? Just, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so let's transition our attention into chapter 5 a little bit. And um, I'd like to kind of set a big picture framework for you. And, um, and then we'll dig in in different ways to some of what's going on in these, in these two halves of chapter 5. And I don't think, I, don't, I, don't, I know not all of you can see this equally, so I'll kind of slide it around a little bit. Um, but I tend to break Romans up into four sections. So chapters one through four, I think, is the first major section of Romans. And then um, I would actually call this explaining salvation. So what Paul is doing in the section that we've covered so far is explaining the nature of salvation in Christ. And he's saying, as, as we've taught, they've preached, he just summarized, that God saves all sinners by grace through faith in Christ, just as he promised. And every part of that matters. Paul's not just saying, here's how it works. He's saying, here's how it works, by grace through faith, just as he promised. This is how God has always operated. And so in Jesus, you find the fulfillment of God's uh, plan to offer salvation to the whole world. And then I think we transition a little bit when we get to chapters 5 through 8, and uh, we begin exploring. So we go into a little bit of a different mentality where we're still kind of thinking through things. Paul is still making a case for different things. But we've established that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, specifically justification. And now we're going to explore what all that means for us. So really, this is a celebration and uh, kind of a tour of all that's made available to those who say yes to Jesus, to those who say, I will accept the promise that God has given me. Now, I don't really, I, I wasn't, I think you guys are taking notes and it's going to drive you crazy if I don't give you the other halves. I'm not going to write them up here because I need to write some stuff here. I would say 9 through 11 is engaging a problem. We'll come to that later. And then 12 through 16 is encouraging the church. It's nice and symmetrical, see? And so, ease. But what's happening, all the ease. What'd you say? It starts with ease, all of them. So. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Beautiful. <laughs> aesthetic and true. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, then you have the two sections that we're talking about here. 5, 1 through 11, Elijah called it a hinge, and that's precisely what it is. I think what he's doing in this passage is he's laying out the blessings of justification. So we're going to unpack them and, 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 and talk through just the goodness, man, the wonderful things that are talked about in this text. We'll talk about here in just a moment, and actually Mark is going to get to preach on some of those uh, this Sunday. And I, I liken it. So hinge is a great metaphor because we've, like, we've, we've established how this works, and this is essentially saying, since that's true, here's some things that are coming your way. 
So it's like you're, you're moving from one room to another. Another metaphor I like to think is that it's like if you've ever hiked up a mountain and you've, gone, you've done some switchbacks. When you're doing switchbacks, all you can see is the land that's right in front of you. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't necessarily get a bigger picture. But when you get up to the peak, you can often look down and you can see the trail that you came. So in 5, 1 through 11, Paul's looking back and he's saying, all right, let's kind of get a bigger picture of what we've been covering. And then he also is preparing us to turn around and explore the top of the mountain. So that's some of what's happening in here. And then from a broad standpoint, I would say that really chapters 5 through 7 are then about freedom. We're talking about freedom from the different things that hold us in bondage. Freedom from death in chapter 5, 12 through 21, the second half of our text tonight. And then freedom from sin in 6 and freedom from the law in 7. So just to get a big picture, that's ex- look, this is exactly what Mark is talking about too. So the guilt problem has been taken care of because the sacrifice of Jesus atones for our sins. But that's not all. There also is this offer to us that we can actually be free. Now, I don't want to say too much because I get to preach a couple sermons here soon. And I don't, want to, I don't want to say now all of what I would say then. But the freedom piece is something that we're going to be hitting in the upcoming weeks. That's the big picture, I would say. Uh, or something like that is the big picture of what's going on in Romans and um, in the text that we're about to unpack. All right, then let's begin. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to read the first uh, five verses for us, and uh, then we're going to talk about it. So it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. One more thing I forgot to say. Uh, Somebody had put in a request. Can you say what translation you're reading from? And so my Bible is NIV. Uh, Is yours ESV? or NIV. NIV. And then what do you got? NIV. So we all have NIV. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, You can compare it with ESV, NASB, whatever you want to use. Yeah, yeah. and none of us would say the other translations are bad. No, like reading the Bible's good. It's true. Sometimes people get a little silly whenever they fight too much over some of these things. Uh, We see value you and all of them, compare some different ones. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I actually prefer the ESV, but I like the size of this Bible. Is that, so. I'm surprised. Like, I would figure you'd have the ESV in your hand. When you I read know. it last week, I was like, oh, the brother's Bible sounds like mine. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, what is this text talking about? Um, I, I want to just kick that off to, to you, Mark, a little bit. If you want to just say, you know, some of the things that, you know, if you could put this this chunk into um, a perspective for us. What are some things you want to highlight in this, in this little passage here? Uh, the word peace and hope. I think one of the things, as Michael said, is we're transitioning from Paul's argument about we have a sin problem and a guilt problem, and that has to be remedied, and we can't fix it. The blood of Jesus was offered to take care of that guilt and that penalty. And Jesus, he didn't ignore it. He took it upon himself. Having said that, what does that produce in us? Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the word hope. But what Paul does here is he plays this little bit of, not a trick, but it's very wise. He said, and how do you know your hope is real when you suffer? When you're challenged, when you're at the end of you, is it that Jesus got you here and then turned you loose? Or is Jesus not 
the one leading you and guiding you and being with you. So those are the first things I would have anybody on a scenic tour up my, Michael's Mountain here. Yeah, I would say I like that. notice peace and notice hope because that's going to play out through all the way to the end of chapter eight. And I think that that peace word is huge uh, because it's really talking about what has happened because we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. You know what that means? Before we did not. We could not approach him. We could not be in his presence in the ways in which we would have longed to be. We could not look upon him. We, weren't, we didn't have access to him in the ways that we did before. And it's why those moments of guilt or shame may have arrested us from even trying to approach him to begin with. The fact that we have peace with God right now means that shame is always a lie. It is not actually true to who we are or our access that we have with God, which is also why he talks about the presence. We can go into his presence we belong to him now in ways that we never could before. And what he's talking about, especially here, that I want to make sure and, and um, caveat, is that when he's saying peace, he's not just saying, you feel good. Like, you feel at rest. That's good, yeah. Like, that's not, he's not saying God has justified you so you could have something apart from him. You only have peace when it's with God. That is the only place you will feel at home. And so what he's saying is now you can feel this sense of belonging and, and right relationship that is going to change every part of who you are. And that's why even when he talks about boasting, which some of your guys, your translations may have boasting, it may have exalting, it may have rejoicing when he's talking about these things. I, I honestly like boasting only because I feel like it parallels so well the things that Paul has said already that you couldn't boast in anything that you have done at all. And now he's saying that not only can you boast, but it won't be in your glory, it will be in God's. And now he also says you can boast, but it won't be in your achievements. It will be in your weaknesses and your suffering. That somehow that actually becomes the stage for God's glory now. So that that can be a place where you boast because God is now where God is going to show himself in prominent ways. It's going to be an amazing thing as you look forward to what God is going to be doing. And one of the things he says, even in regards to our suffering and the things that it produces in us, is Obviously, it produces perseverance, produces character, produces hope. But the whole reason he can say that is because he's looking at the cross. If Jesus' death and resurrection can change everything about the trajectory, not only of God's people, but God's world, just think of what your life in and of itself does. Like, just think about the, what the people around you are communicating about God when they themselves are becoming more than what they could have ever been before because they are a testimony of who God is. Just think of what that, like, even you, in, in and of yourself, as somebody who believes and has faith, and you're being changed through it. Just think about that means for God's world. Because God is not going to leave this place to decay and die and rot. He's going to change and transform every part of it. That's what it means to have hope in him. And to have the Spirit is the prominent part. I don't know if you noticed that. At the end, it talks about being poured, the Spirit being poured out. And it actually, which, again, I don't like to talk about Greek words either, but that word is a perfect, uh, a perfect tense. So we have, you know, tenses like past tense and a present tense word and a future tense word. You know what I mean? Like, I will do this or I did do that. In Greek, they have a perfect tense verb. And that means that not only has it happened, but it's like continuing to happen, like progressively, like it's not stopping. And that's exactly the tense he uses here. He's not saying it, that the Holy Spirit will be poured in. It's not saying it, that it just happened at one point and then it was done. It's saying that you constantly are enjoying this passive reception of the Holy Spirit that is changing every part of who you are. And it's not dependent upon you. And it's just happening in a way that is going to change everything. Um, so... Again, that's what's providing this new, this new hope. 
You want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, I'll have a couple of things to say about the text 1 through 11 as a whole. So just a couple of quick points. One, I just love hearing so much what you're saying. Uh, you guys know this. I'm living in Leviticus a lot right now. I'm doing a series of teachings um, on Leviticus. And so it's all about how you have to be so cautious and careful coming anywhere near the presence of God. And really, the only person who gets to come into God's immediate presence is the high priest, one day a year, day of atonement. All the regulations have to be right. He actually has to take smoky incense in the room so that there's a cloud, so that he doesn't see God directly, so that he doesn't die. There's all this barrier, and here you have this invitation into his presence. It's so rich. So the two things specifically I would point out are that Paul is repeating himself. That's one thing. So we've already, dis- we've already like made the justification point, okay? And, and, and yet here we come back around to make it again. And that, I think, is something that Paul almost always does. Anytime Paul talks about justification once, he talks about justification twice. He does it here, he does it in Galatians, he even does it in Corinthians uh, in a unique way, even though it's not the point of what's going on in Corinthians. And I think there's something to be learned there that you, you need to hear it again. Was, um, was, we were looking at um, Psalm 103 this morning. It says, well, forget not all his benefits. Well, why do we need to forget not his benefits? Well, because we naturally do forget his benefits, so we need to think about them. So Paul, I think, is here driving home the same point he's been making because he wants it to move it from something that's true to something that's true. Somebody once said that the longest distance in the world is 18 inches from right here to right here. And so I think Paul's driving home. The second thing would be just that he says we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I want you to notice the specific statement that Paul is making. Because I think there's a tendency to think that grace is the first leg of the journey, but then we move beyond grace to, I don't know, something else. Like grace is how it begins, and then from there we launch. No, grace is not the first part of the sidewalk. Grace is the name of the whole sidewalk. You understand what I'm saying? So grace is, you never graduate from grace. Never in your life do you get to a point where grace is actually now a minimal theme in your story. No, grace is actually at the heading of every single chapter of every single narrative of a person who belongs to Jesus. And I think he emphasizes that by saying we have access by faith into this grace in which we now currently stand. So even as we move forward, we were pictured here as positioned, anchored in grace. It never leaves us and we never leave it. Verse two is what Michael just said. I want you to notice in chapters one, two, and three, just to review, I'm trying to snap Legos together for you like these guys are so you can see that, wow, they know a lot about this book. No, if you follow the reasoning of it, it teaches itself. First three chapters, we don't have it. We don't have salvation. We don't have hope. We don't have a future. We have punishment and condemnation we've earned. Now, in chapter 5, verse 2, now you stand in grace. The beautiful turn of a phrase right there is so rich. We didn't have it. Now we have it. And why do we have it? Because we gained access by Jesus Christ through our faith. And we are reminded of it, verse 5, through the Holy Spirit. And that's just a, a beginning of the goodness. Like, this is the benefits. This is what we've received from Jesus. That's why we keep telling you in this series. That's why it's so important to me as a pastor. Salvation is more than you don't go to hell. It is so much more. That is awesome. Amen. But that's the tip of the beauty in it. And that's what we want you to see as we kind of walk slowly through this. Just like we've been talking about, to get in the presence of God was impossible. And what what I want you to see, part of what Paul's talking about, even with this idea of justification is that looking at the glory of God would have killed you. It would have shattered you. Moses had to wear a veil, you know, at different points until um, 
by God's basically like him blocking himself out. He let he let Moses see a glimpse by just basically using himself to block him out. And this idea of seeing the glory of God, here's what I don't want you to miss. Paul here is saying, you will see the glory of God. You are always going to see it. You are always going to see it. God's going to return with a judgment. You are always going to see it. Now it's your hope instead of your despair. And the justification that you received in Christ means that's true now. Like not just in the future when God comes, it's true right now. And when you see it, it will no longer destroy you. It will enrapture you. It will be a beauty that you have never tasted or seen in this life and never will until he reveals it to you in in the fullness of that moment. And you no longer have to fear it. Uh, You just have to enjoy it. So, okay, let's move on to verse six. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Uh, so, Michael, you want to tee this one off? Just a few comments on on, on what you uh, want to bring out there? Um, sure. So, I want you to notice, I mean, first of all, every single part of this is rich. And honestly, I don't know if there's a more beautiful verse in the Bible than Romans 5.8, but God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we might just camp out for a moment in the, in the theme of love that you see in this in this particular little subsection. Because as Elijah mentioned in closing out the first paragraph, and hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so he's saying that we can have confidence that this is all true and legitimate because, well, we've experienced the love of God through the Holy Spirit. And I do think he's talking about an experience that the Spirit grants us as members of the family of faith. And that's wonderful and rich. And I cherish the moments when I have really felt God's love really been very aware and mindful of the love that he has for me. And I recognize those as moments in which I've experienced the Spirit. But the fact is, those moments aren't exactly the most stable thing in the world, because the feeling of God's presence comes and the feeling of God's presence goes. Now, I don't think Paul is talking about just the feeling of God's presence, but he's talking about the experience of God's presence. And he knows that we might think, well, what about when I'm not feeling it? And so he actually says one more thing about love. In case you're wondering, in case you don't know if you're feeling it enough to prove to you that it's actually true, in case you don't seem to think that the Holy Spirit is pouring this love out into your hearts, we actually have an objective way of knowing that God is, in fact, who you hope him to be. And it's the cross. It's looking at Jesus. He says, I want you to notice how this works. And so he says, like, you know, nobody's going to die for righteous people, maybe for good people. Think about it like this. I think what he's saying is people aren't just going to die for church people because they're church people. Now, if they're good people, then maybe somebody will die for them. But Jesus actually comes to the worst of the worst and says, I'll die for you. That's the love. And that's how we know it's proved true. And the other point I would want to make, and this is where I would like to tie together 5 through 1, 1 through 11 a little bit, because I think Paul is doing something pretty beautiful, honestly. So I want you to remember the first words that these guys emphasized when we were looking at this particular passage. The first word Mark flagged as being important here is the word peace. And we talked about how we have peace with God uh, right now through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second word, what was the second word? Hope. Yeah, the second word was hope. 
And then um, the thing I was just talking about from those verses in the middle would be love. And then I want you to notice where Paul goes next from this. He says, since this is verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So he's actually pointing to this future salvation. Then he says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Again, he's saying, if we got this goodness now, we got even more goodness coming in the future. So what Paul is saying in those statements is he's drawing attention once again to the future, which is another way of talking about hope. Then notice where he ends it. In the last sentences, he says, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a word that means when two things are in discord or conflict and they are brought together peacefully. So we come back around once more to present peace. So notice the flow of what's happening here. Uh, Paul actually begins and ends with peace. And then inside of this, you have this statement about our future hope, and at the very center, you have love. And I think what he's saying is we can have peace with God right now and look forward to a hope in the future, all driven by the love that we've experienced through the Holy Spirit and that God has proven without doubt in the cross. In other words, today is taken, to, taken care of. Tomorrow is going to be fine because always is the word that characterizes the love that God provides for us in Jesus. So this, to me, is one of the most moving texts in the Bible. And the more I think about it, sometimes when you really dig into a text, it almost, it's almost like I use the example in class of dissecting a butterfly. It's like you dissect a butterfly, and it just, it's, well, it's prettier when it's flapping its wings. You know what I'm saying? But with a text like this, I absolutely want you to dig in deep and look at all the details. But then if you can back up and say, well, what's the bigger picture? Sometimes you put the wings back on and that sucker flies through the room and you find yourself seeing something that you never saw before. So that, I think, is what he's saying about the blessings of justification, that you can be absolutely darn sure that you have them and you always will because of the cross. So that's why I think about this passage, generally speaking. Well, um, you know, one of the things I love, too, about um, chapter 5, and um, I'm not sure where you stand with this, but um, Doug Moo, he's a, he's a commentator on this, um, Douglas Moo on this, on the book of Romans. And uh, one of the things he says, which I think is also pretty, pretty helpful in understanding how 5 through 8 work together, is that, is that it's almost like a bracket so if you think of chapter five as being, you know, this side of the bracket and chapter eight being this side of the bracket, chapter eight actually mimics Absolutely. this this content. Um, and so if you read this first part of chapter five and you go to chapter eight and you look at the end, you will actually see, again, this correspondence between this, what, what Paul is doing as he's ramping up these things. Um, and I think it really helps show that how this five through eight is a unit in terms of what Paul is doing about and speaking in regards to this transformation. And that's why even when we get to chapter nine, which I'm speaking ahead of myself, but when we get to chapter nine, you can see Paul's, Paul turns the corner again, you know, um, he's going to turn the corner again so that he's going to answer some new questions that arise in light of what he's been talking about. But five through eight is truly a beautiful, uh, just section of, of really glorifying God and showing us where, where we fit into it. And so, one of the things I would even say is, you know, in regards to suffering as a whole, is as we look at, at, at a text like this, and it says suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. It's like, man, that's nice of Paul to say, but it doesn't always feel like that, does it? 
Like it's a lot more difficult to actually feel those things. Like, like Michael was talking about, the distance between our head and our heart. Like we can know that that's true, but like where is God in those moments when I need him? And can I tell you this? The best way to start addressing those things is to actually say, say what is true out loud. Like, don't allow yourself to say what is false out loud because that's what our tendency is to do. Well, God must not be here. Why is this happening to me? Like, we start to question all these things and instead replace that with suffering is producing something in me. Like, this is not just for my, for my glory, it's for God's. And God has promised that he's going to be with me in this, producing something that even though I can't see it, I will. And it will be far more stunning than anything that I would have rather had in comfort I would have much rather looked like that than, than where I am today. And I think that's true. I think if most of us look at our suffering, we can usually say that whether it's suffering the world caused because it's broken or whether it's suffering that we, we, we had because we did something wrong or whatever, uh, man, God always uses it. He doesn't waste it. Um, I, the easiest illustration I have is, you know, when my son, I've, I've told the story before, when my son was going through some things health-wise and we just didn't know if he was going to live. Uh, he was in the hospital for three weeks. And it was this weird, random thing during COVID. And it wasn't COVID. It was like E. coli. And it kind of spun off into this toxin that is happens in 2% of people who get E. coli. We didn't even know where he got it from. And it ended up essentially debilitating him. His, his blood uh, was breaking down and his, making his organs break down. And we didn't know what was going to happen. But I can tell you on this side of it, uh, it was God did so many amazing things through it. He shaped me. He shaped my wife. He shaped our son and our, our my. Really, I think he shaped every person that was close by us in that situation. My my mother in law, who is not a Christian, uh, was in our house, uh, you know, watching our other son while we were going through all this. And the people that here didn't even know this, but they actually all came to our house, got in our cul-de-sac and prayed. Our neighbors were a part of it. And I don't even know my neighbors that well. So very grateful that they joined this kind of prayer circle, but they had no idea. My, my mother-in-law was on the inside of the house watching all of this happen and not totally understanding it. Um, and so, so God just does so many things through these things. And what God's promise is, is even if you don't get to see the fruit of it in this life, you will in the next because the glory of God will be seen everywhere, all over the place. So you guys have questions about, we're running short on time, uh, so you're going to have to pick up the 12 through 21 uh, through the rest. But do you guys have any questions concerning what we've talked about thus far? Verse 7. Oh, that no one, no one would die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone possibly dare to die, that verse? Yeah, the idea there is he's using righteous person there in the sense of like, I think, I think he's used it in the sense of a religious person, somebody who belongs to the covenant family. And so in our terminology, it would be like saying, it's not like everybody's just itching to die for church people. Although for good people, someone might possibly give their life. But Jesus actually goes way back to whatever the worst category is while we were still sinners. That's the idea. So righteous people there, the reason why it's tricky is because we tend to think that righteous is better than good. And in certain respects, it's a more specific form of good. And so the words are being used like good is a general term. Righteous is you're really, you're really in good shape with God. Paul's using in them in a little bit more, not quite sarcastic ways, um, but um, the word just has an overlap with our concept of religious person. And he's using it more in that particular way. I don't know how to characterize it, but I think that's what he's getting at. However the world categorizes those who are worthy to die for, the people who aren't in that category, 
That's you, and Jesus died for you. That's what he's getting at. Okay, awesome. I have a question for you too. Okay. In um, verse six, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, does that correlate at all to Galatians 4.4? 4? Yes, it's exactly, yes. All right, if you don't know Galatians 4.4, 4, it's a passage I often point out to you at Christmas, which means you're not listening in December. <laughs> but it says at just the right time, in other words, in God's perfect timing, in God's perfect moment. Like, why didn't Jesus, I, I remember getting asked this question in Bible college, why didn't Jesus come now when there's CNN and satellites and everyone would know instantaneously? Why back when there wasn't all the technology? Because in God's perfect timing. And um, my Life of Christ professor equated it to the Roman roads and the, the languages that were more pervasive in the time that God in his perfect wisdom sent Jesus at just a moment. And I don't want us to look at verse 6 in Romans 5 and just walk through that quickly. Yeah. It's actually a tip of the cap, I think, to the sovereignty of God's perfect wisdom. And so we need to celebrate that too. We would not have planned it the way he did it, and it wouldn't have worked if we had, I think is an oversimplification. Well, and it's such a rich thing that honestly is, is, is something I think you guys might enjoy tracing out. So one piece that you wouldn't necessarily uncover just from looking at it is that, um, you know, the, in the Greek language, there are two different words for time. One is chronos, which is where we get our word chronological, and it's like time as a sequential, you know, set of moments. And the other is kairos, which is less about like time as it moves on, but, a, but the moment is how we might talk about, oh, it was time. Like whenever, you know, if a wife says to her husband, it's time, like baby's coming, we got to roll. She's not saying, oh, it just happens to be 4.46 p.m. No, it's the moment is here. And that's, I think, the kairos is the word that's used here. If, if you want something to look at when you're working through Romans, try to read through, and depending on your translation, look at every time there's a mention of time or the word now or the word presently, because in a lot of different ways, I think this is sort of a thread that Paul weaves through it. And if you were to just pull out all the verses that talk about like, but now, or at the present time, and you kind of combine those, I think it'll be something that would be worth meditating on because it's probably going to be a pretty rich collection of ideas and promises. Promises, not just ideas, but promises. That's a good word. Well, again, uh, keep asking good questions, and we hope that this is helpful, um, not only just as you come to understand the content of Romans, but more importantly, the author. Like, not Paul, but God. And so uh, I want to pray for you as we pray that uh, these words continue to find just a response in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and you are good as always, God. We trust you and we pray, Father, that um, our suffering would be turned to glory and our glory would be uh, for, your, for your joy and blessing as, as it really just is reflecting you, Father, and all that you have um, invited us to be a part of. God, we just pray that you would continue to allow our justification to not only be understood from our heads, but God experienced and enjoyed in our hearts. And Father, we just, we long for the day that you come. We ask for it, but we recognize, God, that your timing is always perfect and good. And uh, Father, we just pray that it, um, we would be faithful to the things you've called us to as your work continues on. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to this class. We hope it helps you find completeness in Jesus. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.